Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Let's get started with our two Afghan interpreters. So Mr. Khan is in Afghanistan late at night there. Mr. Khan, how are you? Yeah, it's always good talking to you. We always have a bit of a challenge with the with the sound, but we will do the best we can. Uh, how much danger are you in right now? We're just we're just having we're having some trouble. Just take Mr. Put Mr. Khan on hold for just a moment, please, because we're having trouble with his signal. And uh, let's talk to Sajin Kazimi, who is a former uh, interpreter. Sorry, we have to do that, but we'll see if we can't clear this up. Try calling him back in Afghanistan. See if we can get a better line. Sajin, uh, you were left behind, Alex, with us for so uh, such a long period of time. Again, I'm so glad that you were able to get out of Afghanistan. You're in Dallas, Texas. You're hoping to get into this country, and I, I'm 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 really hoping that happens quickly. I asked Mr. Khan how much danger he is in. You tell us, please. How much danger is he in? Well, first of all, let me thank you for your time putting us in this program and making our voice be heard by the people. So uh, about the danger on Khan, right now it's 100% because uh, if you, as you are well aware of the situation, the current situation is going worse and worse every day. It's really critical. I feel Khan and I feel the rest of the interpreters who are left behind right now in Afghanistan. So Afghanistan turned into a war zone. There is no way out. They can flee the country. So I really feel sorry about those interpreters. Uh, there are too many dangers out there. One is the Taliban. The other one is the ISIS. The other one, like all the extremists, they're involved in killing, massacred and stuff. So they don't have any mercy on the people, especially for those who help the ISAF and NATO elements in Afghanistan. So, uh, Sajjan, if they do, in fact, apprehend, catch Mr. Khan mm-hmm. and his family, what will they do to them? So, without any hesitation, they're going to torture, him, torture, torture them to the death. Like, there is no mercy at all. They'll kill, they'll torture them, they'll behate them. As they did, one of the interpreters, like, a few years ago, they behated him, they put his head on his chest on the highway 
to make it as, a, as an example for the rest of the interpreter. They will do the same thing. They will kill the family. They will kill him. They won't even hesitate. I think we have Mr. Khan back in uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, can you hear me okay, Mr. Khan? Yes, I can hear now, sir, but I don't know. You, you hear me? We, we do hear you somewhat better. So let me ask you, how afraid are you right now for yourself and your family's safety? Uh, sir, I'm very fearful. Nowadays, the situation is very bad. And uh, it's like a panic everywhere. And even the government can't control the situation. So, so like, I'm the most, this is the most dangerous time in the past 20 years, sir. Do the um, do the Taliban and the and ISIS and the insurgents? They are aware of you, correct? They know who you are. Uh, because do you know I have worked like three years in Zikwitter in Kandahar, and I have been seen by a lot of ANA and a lot of police. Uh, they were from my town, so they spread the news. It was guys interpreter with comedian, and also I have been seen by a lot of drivers who are. Uh, supporting logistics for ISAF. So they have found me elsewhere in Kandahar, and actually they were known me here from my own town. So therefore, obviously, uh, a lot of people know about it. Um, do you know of anyone, any interpreter in Afghanistan, do you know if any of them have been contacted by anyone from the Canadian government? Have you been contacted by anyone from the Canadian government, if you can, in fact, tell us that? Uh, I haven't been contacted from the immigration department or from global affairs department so far. Like, officially, I haven't received an email or any call uh, from the government. Anything I just heard and just see in the, on the Twitter and, and social media. So without that, like, I haven't, seen, haven't received any official email from uh, relevant authority so far. Yeah. Um, Sajjan, how did you get out? How, how were you able to leave Afghanistan? Well, uh, as I mentioned before... I don't know. It's like... Uh, just just yeah. one second, Mr. Khan. We've got your friend Sajjan on the line as well. Go ahead, Sajjan. Yeah, back to your question. Uh, I applied for the SIV program special immigration visa in 2015, which is a long time for me. So I applied for that program. I was qualified, although I didn't have enough documents for it. It was a miracle for me. They helped me out. I thank them. I thank everyone who helped me out on this ground. So it was the only hope that I could get out. But before, I was trying every possible way for coming to Canada. Even I contacted Justin Trudeau's administration, like his office. They replied replied back to me like, "We're sorry, we can't help you." Yeah, Mr. Khan, what did you do when you were out with Canadian troops? When when you were with them, what kinds of things uh, did you do for them? I was there like uh, as an unarmed soldier, and I had uh, radioed myself tracking uh, insurgent chattering. Uh, talking with local population outside and doing interpret and was doing interpretation between Afghan uh, national forces and uh, the Indian. So and we were attending meeting outside with district chief and also talking with local outside, uh, local elder 
uh, also tracking uh, uh, insurgent radio. Okay. They were talking, so we used, we used to translate to the captain. So then we like used to change rooms or informing them about their activity. Sajun, what did, when you were with the Canadian forces, did you do the same thing? Tell us, please. What, what would it, what would a day be like if they were going out on patrol, and you were going with them, and you were unarmed always? What was your day like? What did you do? It was uh, scary for me. I accepted all uh, accepted all the challenges going out there on the wire, like outside the wire. So we were going out. We like we we knew hundred percent we were going to be under fire. I mean under firearmed by the Taliban or any other insurgents out there. So I remember we came under attack several times. I remember there were IEDs going off like it was really horrible situation. But at the same time, we were helping the Canadian troops and the ANA Afghan National Army. We were as a bridge, as a link to exchange the language and make it understandable for both sides. Of course, it was really dangerous, too risky for us. We joined uh, an operation which was for a month. We went to Helmand province, which was called the Operation Mustarak. Everyone is aware of it. Everyone knows it. Uh, we suffered really bad days. There were dog days, you know. It, I mean, there, there was no difference for the military because they were sort of like familiar with the situation, with the weather, like whether it was like hot, cold, we were going into the water, everywhere, <coughs> like mud. But of course, that was a dangerous job. For interpreters, it was like too risky because we were unarmed. We were just walking and following them, like walking patrols, convoy patrols, all patrols, you know. We came under attack so, so many times, but luckily we survived. We didn't die over there. We weren't killed by the Taliban. But right now, they're trying to kill us. Like, when I say us, I'm talking about my friends. I'm talking about Khan. I'm talking about Haidari. I'm talking about the rest of them in Afghanistan. They need to be fast-tracked and pulled out of Afghanistan as soon as possible before the time is going to run out for them. Yeah, you were very graphic in what you explained would uh, would happen to, uh, to Mr. Khan and the other interpreters and their families if they are, in fact interdicted, caught by the Taliban, ISIS, and the other insurgent groups there. So we don't want to repeat that. We don't want Mr. Khan to repeat that. He knows what he's facing if he's caught. We need to get you into this country, Mr. Khan. We need to get the other interpreters into Canada. We now have the immigration minister saying he has a plan or they have an operational plan they're putting together and they have the intention of bringing you here. I know Canadians will continue to apply pressure to get you here. Mr. Khan, be careful. We'll stay in touch with you. Sajun, thank you for coming on. I'm so glad you're in North America. Let's get your friends here, too. We're going to switch gears here, but we're going to stay with the military, and we're going to talk about rebuilding or re-equipping our Canadian Armed Forces. New submarines for the Royal Canadian Navy are on the uh, order sheet. Well, they're going to be. The plan is there that they're going to be ordered, but need to know what we need. Along with a, a fleet of frigates, I think 15 frigates, and an expected announcement by Ottawa this year with a final decision of which fighter jet will be purchased to replace the CF-18s, still in operation. Many of them are older than their pilots. We also have entertainers, um, Neil Young and uh, politicians, Stephen Lewis and uh, 
scientists, Dr. David Suzuki, and others. They've issued an open letter saying that Canada should not be buying new fighter jets, that we can better spend the money on other endeavors. Well, joining us on the program is Vice Admiral Mark Norman. Uh, the Admiral was the commander of the Royal Canadian Navy, was also the second in command of the Canadian military and served this country so admirably, no pun intended, for so many years. Admiral Norman, good to have you with us. It's almost an honor to speak with you, sir. Well, good afternoon, Roy, uh, to you and your listeners. Uh, interesting series of topics you've got on the go, as always. Well, let me ask you to just give us your thoughts on this country's responsibility to the interpreters who served with our forces. And we had General Milner tell us last weekend, and he repeated it today, that the Afghan campaign veterans, Canadian veterans, see these interpreters as comrades in arms. Well, certainly I would agree. General Milner is a friend and a former colleague, and he's not alone. He's one of the many um, amazing Canadians who have uh, spoken out on this issue, and uh, I think I think we do have an obligation. Um, I, I believe uh, Canada is uh, known worldwide for opening its uh, borders, opening its arms uh, to those in need, and uh, certainly when we're dealing with a, a community who have served alongside uh, the women and men uh, of Canada who served in Afghanistan and uh, th themselves who sacrificed, and they're continuing to sacrifice as they stay in a country that has been left in turmoil and their lives are, uh, are being threatened. I think we do, we do have an obligation to look after them, and I think that Canada can uh, bring them here and uh, give them new lives uh, here, as uh, has been the case with literally millions of, uh, of new Canadians. Yeah. Admiral, let's talk about this, uh, the state of the current submarine fleet, and what it is that we need. We had problems from the start with the four subs that were bought from the, uh, from the UK. I remember speaking with a British politician who said that Canada should be suing Britain for selling them those submarines. But then somebody else said, buyer beware. What's the state of our submarine reality right now? Well, as you said, I mean, we've got four submarines which were built uh, in the 19, late 1980s. Uh, they were... Uh, decommissioned by the Royal Navy. Uh, they sat <clears throat> inactive for the better part of a decade before we took delivery. Uh, they've had a very um, unfortunate um, history um, of uh, transition into Canadian service. <clears throat> they're now, you know, they're now operating uh, as a fleet of four submarines as best you can, which means on any given day, um, you'll have uh, two submarines available. You'll have a third potentially available, either ramping up or ramping down from operational availability, and you have a fourth submarine in uh, in deep maintenance, and that's that's uh, a function of uh, keeping them um, operating. And uh, they've got about another, I'd say, 15 years uh, potentially of life. We're looking at the mid 2030s um, at at, uh, at the out at the outer edge. Um, for uh, their potential lives, and uh, it's entirely appropriate and timely that uh, there should be uh, a discussion now about uh, what we should do to look for replacement capability. So, as I understand it, Canada has budgeted some $60 billion approximately for the new submarines. What do we need as far as submarine capability is concerned, and will that $60 billion in today's dollars, military dollars, buy us what we require? Yeah, so I think uh, 
start with the financial side of this because it's always uh, um, an emotive issue. It's always an issue that uh, raises significant concern. That's a placeholder. Um, it won't know the uh, the true price uh, of the of the submarine capability in whatever form it takes um, until this program is uh, much more advanced. And we don't want to repeat the uh, recent errors of the past where we anchor in uh, an estimate, a very early preliminary uh, rough order estimate, and then uh, discover uh, as things evolve that it's not actually the amount that was estimated. And then we have a whole bunch of um, rhetoric back and forth about our inability to predict. So I would describe that budget. Uh, it's not a budget. Uh, it's an estimate. And um, that's part of the reason why we need to start a uh, project in order to refine um, the estimate into a proper budget. Now, as it relates to the capability, well, uh, what we need is um, basically a newer and better version of what we have now. Uh, we, we need the ability to operate um, submerged for extended periods of time. We need the ability to transit large distances because um, we do have the largest maritime state in the world, and it's a long way from uh, Victoria or Halifax uh, up to the Northwest Passage or even up into the Arctic Ocean. It's also a long way to the potential theaters of operation where we may need to deploy these submarines beyond our own backyard. Um, so they're going to have to be um, fairly reasonable in size. They're going to have to have a good endurance. Uh, they're going to need to have um, an, an ability to operate submerged for extended periods of time. We're going to need a, a submarine that's able to operate in or correction, uh, near or under the ice, um, which we don't currently have. And uh, there's a lot of very interesting technologies that are now available, which weren't available decades ago, uh, that could allow uh, Canada to have that capability. And we need a larger fleet. Um, and we need a larger fleet because we're already seeing that, as I described earlier, uh, four gets you two, occasionally three, um, and uh, that's just not enough to meet the commitments or potential requirements that we're going to have going forward. So, Admiral Norman, every time there's uh, an effort made for a procurement for Canada's military, and there are significant dollars involved, and these, these, this equipment isn't inexpensive. It costs a lot of money to, as you know far better than I, to purchase and then operate uh, this military equipment. But the question is, why does Canada need it? The Americans have everything. They'll take care of us. Why do we need submarines? Why do we need 15 frigates? Why do we need new giant jet fighters? What's the and, and you know the letter, obviously the letter that's been sent by um, various people who disagree with the idea of fighter jets to the prime minister. What's the answer? Well, I think the answer has a couple of layers to it. I mean, the first one is that uh, one of the ultimate responsibilities of a national government is uh, to ensure the defense and security of its citizens. Now, some will argue, as we've seen in the letter uh, this past week, that uh, there are other security threats, there are other threats to the safety of Canadians, and I don't disagree. But the reality is that the physical security um, of the country and its approaches is an essential function uh, of government. And that, whether people like it or not, and I know that many don't, uh, that requires um, having um, military capability. Yes, of course the Americans are there, but the Americans have their own challenges. Uh, and the friendship uh, and alliance that we have with the United States has its limits. Um, and they have reasonable 
uh, expectations that Canada is going to, um, you know, carry its own weight in terms of the defense of North America. Um, so we need to know what's going on uh, in our own approaches, our own backyard, if you will. Uh, we need we need to know what's going on in the broader neighborhood, and then. I believe Canada has a responsibility. We're a wealthy nation. We're a nation that uh, has uh, e- evolved um, based on our tradition of helping others. Um, that tradition is likely to continue, and I believe that we have responsibilities to uh, help out around the world when, it, when and if it's required. And unfortunately, that may require us to use military force. Again, it's not a universally popular um, perspective, but uh, the the sad reality of uh, our history and of the modern world is that things are getting tougher. They're not getting better, and um, we need we need robust um, capability in order that we can intervene in an effective manner. And I would say most importantly that the young women and men who we ask to serve this nation have the equipment that will to the greatest extent possible, ensure their safety when they're out there doing the dangerous things that we ask them to do. And you've pointed out to us on this program in the past, we live in a fractious world and an increasingly fractious world. And to the people who say, well, let the Americans take care of us, uh, successive American presidents have told Canada to spend the agreed percentage of our GDP in building up our military. That's come from the White House. Yeah, and that's true. And, and uh, you know, you've heard me say that uh, I'm not necessarily hung up on the number itself, but I am a firm supporter of uh, Canada doing its fair share. And right. uh, when your closest and longest uh, serving uh, ally and your closest neighbor and friend is telling you that you need to step up, you need to step up. Um, and... Uh, it, it's not a matter of um, what the right number is. It's a matter of um, making sure, as I said earlier, that you've got the right capabilities to look after your own um, sovereignty, your own approaches, uh, but also in, in our special circumstance here in North America, we have shared obligations with respect to the defense of North America, plus broader obligations with respect to the NATO alliance. And as I said earlier, um our, our responsibilities as members of the international community. And that doesn't mean that those other priorities that, that the, the distinguished Canadians who wrote the letter were referring to. This is not a binary situation. It's not an either-or situation. And when it's presented as such, I think it's a, it does a disservice to the, to the debate and to the discussion. You can have a robust discussion about the defense of Canada and what sorts of capabilities Canada should or shouldn't have without comparing it to a lot of the other issues that were put on the table in the letter. Um, We are a wealthy nation. Uh, We we can do both. Uh, We can have and should have uh, clean drinking water for Aboriginal communities and modern fighter jets. Uh, We shouldn't be juxtaposing those two as if they're in competition. I think that's irresponsible. Admiral Norman, uh, let me come back to... Rather than just talking about dollars and 88 fighter planes, let me ask you about the kind of world we live in. Because you've told, talked to us before about the fractious nature of this planet, of the, the countries that are opposing one another and seeing opportunity to take from others what they want for themselves. Just where are we headed? Are we headed toward a more 
peaceable reality, or do you have concerns that things are headed in the opposite direction? Well, I'm not going to try and predict uh, where we're headed, Roy, um, but I will say that I, I have significant concerns. Uh, you and I have discussed those previously. Um, I think uh, there are a number of indicators uh, that uh, I would say that things are probably going to get worse before they get better. Um, certainly, as we come out of the, uh, the pandemic, um, we look at um, a lot of the uh, economic implications. We look at the levels of inequality uh, around the world. Uh, we look at the fact that there's uh, there's a handful of countries who are continuing to leverage, uh, or I would suggest exploit, um, the fact that the West has been distracted um, by uh, by uh, this uh, unprecedented health crisis. So you know it, it's it's not necessarily good. And and uh, I'm on the record. You and I have discussed uh, the continued aggressive uh, behavior of China. Uh, particularly in their own backyard, but more globally, as uh, they establish um, uh, relationships and and bases uh, all around the world. They have an interest in the Arctic, which is our backyard. Uh, they're not shy about it. Um, and these are the kinds of things that are going to affect um, our world in, in the coming decades. Right. Um, and, you know, we don't know exactly how it's going to play out, but uh, we want to be prepared. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, I think uh, many of your listeners would relate to uh, the realities that we've all just lived through the last couple of years. Um, were we really prepared for a global pandemic? The answer was no. Um, and can we draw some lessons from that? Of course we can. Right. Uh, and, and the lesson is that, sadly, there are a lot of things uh, in life uh, that um, require us to uh, prepare in ways which are not necessarily the way we would think uh, on a daily basis. With us now is Michael Barrett, Conservative Member of Parliament, Shadow Minister for Ethics. We have a specific issue to discuss with Mr. Barrett, but I want to get you, uh, Mr. Barrett, first before we get at your issue. What's your take on the need to get the Afghan interpreters into this country? Well, it's absolutely imperative that we... Uh, that we get these um, Afghan interpreters uh, to Canada. Um, they and their families are uh, being targeted um, by the Taliban. And these are folks who risked their lives and their their safety and their family's safety by helping um, our Canadian forces, the men and women of the Canadian Armed Forces and their support staff while we were in Afghanistan. And so this is, it's absolutely imperative um, we've been clear about this, and uh, and now with the withdrawal of the uh, U.S. troops and NATO troops, um, and the increase, the the sharp rise in Taliban activity, um, you know, time is time is uh, not on our side. We need to get these folks here, and uh, it's time to pull out all the stops. Now, you say you've been clear, and I'm sure you have. I haven't heard much from your party. Uh, well, our uh, our leader, Aaron O'Toole, issued a uh, a clear and unequivocal statement calling on uh, Prime Minister Trudeau to take immediate steps. That letter was released uh, this week. And uh, and uh, our shadow minister for defense, uh, James Bazan, he, he, issued, uh, he issued a statement uh, the week prior 
Um, and so we continue to uh, to make those calls on the government to, to take swift action because, yeah, uh, yeah. as I as I said, time uh, time is not on our side here. Do it on a do it on a daily basis. And I know Mr. O'Toole was a member of the uh, Canadian military, as a member of the uh, of the Air Force. Now, the Conservative Party of Canada sent a letter to the Parliamentary Conflict of Interest and Ethics Commissioner Mario Dion, requesting an investigation into Liberal MPs paying from their public monies, their expense accounts for services to the party by a company called Data Sciences, Inc., a company owned by a lifelong friend of Mr. Trudeau. Two senior liberal MPs told the Globe and Mail they don't have any idea what Data Sciences, in fact, does for the Liberal Party, and yet the liberal MPs are blocking parliamentary investigation uh, at the ethics committee level, saying that your party's involved in a witch hunt. So, over to you, um, Mr. Barrett. What's going on? In layman's terminology, what's this about? Well, um, the, the, the issue that we brought to the ethics commissioner is that we have this uh, lifelong friend uh, who was in Mr. Trudeau's wedding, a gentleman by the name of Mr. Tom Pitfield, who um, started up a company, and that company um, was, was given contracts by the Liberal Party of Canada to, to run their, um, their back office data, data operations. Uh, but once elected, um, 97% of the Liberal caucus um, was organized into giving taxpayer money through their members' budgets to Mr. Pitfield's company. As you noted, um, some MPs who were willing to go on the record said they don't even know what the money is for. They don't know what the services, um, what services are being are being provided. So the issue here is when we have a close personal friend, a lifelong friend, a groomsman of of uh, the prime ministers, and uh, someone at the cabinet level, the the chief government whip was involved in in having these members all sign up, um, who was orchestrating this arrangement that clearly benefits uh, this personal friend of the Prime Minister's, and and that presents a situation that would be contrary to the ethics code for members, and right now the ethics commissioner is, is in the process of, um, of making his final determination on if a formal investigation will be launched, and, and if he does, this will be the fourth time in six years that Justin Trudeau has been uh, has been formally investigated by an officer of parliament and uh, having twice already been found guilty of breaking ethics laws. Yeah, so Mr. Dion, who's kind of gentle, I think, toward the Liberals, uh, even though he did convict um, Mr. Trudeau in the SNC-Lavalin situation of ethics violations, but he has options, uh, and he has options to be very direct. What exactly do you want him to do? Because when I, looked, I read your letter to Mr. Dion, yeah, I see the Liberals already paid more than 75000 to data sciences, but your letter also mentions a million dollars. That's a lot of money. Yeah, so the, the other issue here is that there's another company called NGP Van, and this company is the same one used by uh, U.S. Democrats like Barack Obama in his uh, election campaigns. And this company provides a service to the Liberal Party, so the political party that they use during elections, and the 97% of the Liberal caucus are also using this company to provide uh, effectively the exact same uh, software um, for their constituency offices. So the concern here is uh, what, what is going on where we have data collection for members' offices, we have data collection for a political party, and we're being told that they're paying twice for the same service and that uh, and that there's no cross-pollination of information. And two of them um, don't know what the service is. Well, well, that's right. And so that, I think that, that that certainly should send up the red flag for everyone. And 
And of course, if there um, if there's nothing uh, if there's nothing wrong with uh, or nothing untoward going on, the Liberals should have no issue with uh, with an inquiry being conducted. But we brought it to the Ethics Committee. They filibustered for five hours, waited till an, uh, waited till a you know a, a member uh, of another opposition party left the room, and they moved to adjourn the meeting, having uh, having enough votes at that point, and, and were able to do it. And they're saying that you're engaged in a witch hunt. I mean, that's what they're saying. Well, well, they they, they they've used that, that term before. They've used that term before. They said that they said the same thing uh, about. Uh, they said that was true of all of the work done by the ethics committee this year, and that, of course also includes work that we did um, with respect to the sharing of non-consensual images online by companies like uh, Pornhub. And so I think that every time they're uncomfortable with the, the subject matter, they, they yell that, uh, that it's a witch hunt. Um, they also said that the story in the Globe and Mail was false when, uh, when the allegations about Mr. Trudeau involving his interference in the criminal prosecution of SNC-Lavalin were brought forward. The, the Prime Minister himself said that those Allegations were false. Well, we know, in fact, that the prime minister well, did interfere and, and was found guilty. Well, of Mr. That. Barrett, have a listen. The allegations in the Globe story this morning are false. Uh, neither the current nor the previous attorney general uh, was ever directed by me or by anyone in my office uh, to uh, take a, a decision uh, in this matter. So what I've always said is don't say to me today what you don't want me to play back for you tomorrow. <laughs> exactly. But there it is, and uh, there's more to. I hope there's more to come on the SNC Lavalin case. What do you expect, Mr. Dion, to do? Really, what's what's your what's your expectation of what the commissioner will do? Well, we uh, he's given the opportunity for Mr. Trudeau to respond to him. Um, I, I he he has a couple of weeks to uh, undertake this process, the commissioner, and um, and then he will launch a formal uh, formal inquiry. I hope that he uh, should he do that that he avails himself of. Um, of an in-person interview with the with the prime minister, I um, I think that that would be incredibly important. Uh, we know that um, we know that the prime minister's responses, that Mr. Trudeau's responses, aren't always uh, honest, as was demonstrated in that clip that you just played. And so um, that's why I think it's very important that um, that the commissioner sit down, uh, look Mr. Trudeau in the eye, and, and get those answers. Uh, and then make an assessment on, on whether or not um, that, that violation has occurred. I think it's really important, Roy, that this happens before the upcoming uh, expected federal election, because effectively what the Liberals, it appears the Liberals are doing, is they're using their members' budgets to pay these companies that are also offering these same services to them in uh, for electoral purposes. So yeah. that that's effectively subsidizing the political campaign that the Liberals are about to run with the members' office budgets that are supposed to be used exclusively to help uh, to help their constituents um, for non-political purposes. Yeah, including that million dollars, right? Absolutely. Last Saturday, right after we'd spoken with the two mayors of Niagara Falls, New York, and Niagara Falls, Ontario, I opened the phone lines. And I asked people for to share their border crossing experiences with us, and we had a call from Stephen. And Stephen, and we took calls fairly quickly. We didn't have a lot of time set aside for phone calls, but Stephen said that as he had re-entered Canada that morning, so last Saturday morning, he was issued a $5,000 fine. And I asked Stephen to get in touch with me, which he 
did. And uh, attached to the $5,000 fine was a $1,250 surcharge. So now the $5,000 fine becomes $6,250 for doing what? Well, Stephen is uh, back with us on the program. And by the way, we're going to take some phone calls from you for your border experiences this hour. But Stephen is back with us. Thanks, Stephen, for coming on the back on the program. When I heard you say last Saturday that you got a $5,000 fine, I thought, how in hell does that happen? How in hell? I, I don't understand it myself. But basically, I mean, I'm double vaccinated. I had the COVID test done uh, within 72 hours of crossing. And uh, I've uh, had my shots more than 60 days uh, ago. So uh, they've more than kicked in already. So I'm, I'm immune, basically. So you I sent, yeah, I want to tell everybody that you sent me photographs and photocopies of your actual documentation. So I have it. I have the fine for $6,250. I was in front of me. I have uh, evidence of your being vaxxed. I have evidence of your COVID test being negative. I have evidence of your ArriveCan application being filled out and you receiving a receipt with your QR number. I have all of that. And you're a Canadian citizen. And yet you got a $5,000 fine. So do you have any idea what you did wrong? Well, I guess it's because I don't play for the Montreal Canadiens, Toronto FC, CF Montreal, or the Toronto Blue Jays, because they're allowed to cross the border back and forth, not even being vaccinated. But here I am, fully vaccinated, and with testing, and they don't allow the citizens to come back. So let me, read, going- let, me, let me read you something that I received. And I sent this to you as well. But I want listeners to hear it. So I received this from someone who knows what's going on. That's all I'm going to say. So um, specific protocols and requirements are still in place for cross-border travel, including COVID-19 testing requirements for travelers. And there's a website that is given, travel.gc.ca, forward slash travel hyphen COVID, and so on and on and on it goes. As a quick summary, all travelers five years of age or older must provide, if you're thinking about leaving the country, listen up, or coming back. As a quick summary, all travelers five years of age or older must provide proof of a negative COVID-19 test result. For those crossing at land borders, they must take the test in the United States within 72 hours of their planned entry into Canada. In addition to the test needing to be completed within 72 hours and in the United States, there's a list of acceptable molecular tests available on the website provided. An added note mentions that the COVID-19 test taken cannot be an antigen test and currently proof of having a vaccine will not replace a negative test. As mentioned, this is just a quick summary as there are additional requirements for various situations, including those who've tested positive for COVID-19 when traveling. goes on to say, um, it is possible that this individual, this would be you, Stephen, who had entered Canada at a land border crossing provided negative COVID-19 tests that were any one of multiples of the following, not taken in the United States, not taken within 72 hours, a test not on the approved list, which includes any antigen tests that are not accepted. Uh, The proof of the testing result provided was not accepted based on the requirements as per the website. And then it goes on to say, contraventions and fines are coordinated at land border crossings by the Public Health Agency of Canada and laid with their direction. 
If an appropriate enforcement officer is not available to physically lay a fine, local law enforcement agencies are contacted to assist based on evidence provided by PHAC in addition to CBSA. Although there are a variety of potential fines that can be laid under the Canada Quarantine Act, in these cases, the appropriate offense is found under Section 58 of the Quarantine Act for failure to comply with an order prohibiting or subjecting to any condition the entry into Canada. The set fine is currently $5,000, with a total payable fine being 6250 bucks. You never had a chance. Well, I don't, I, first of all, I don't believe these new changes that came into effect the, the week before have been brought into the Quarantine Act and passed by Parliament. So what I mean, what did you do wrong in there? Did was it was it that you hadn't had the the, the test done in the United States? Because I saw the test results that you had, uh, the test you did take, they were negative. Yes, my test was done at Humber Hospital in Toronto because it was done Wednesday night. Because I was here Wednesday night. If I had done it seventy two hours, or if I did it just before my crossing, um, I would have had it gone. You know, I was gone only for four or five hours. So you know, I don't know how it's possible to go there. Do whatever I want. Get the sh- get my test. Get results and bring it back. So you crossed from Canada into the United States Saturday morning, to the satisfaction of these of the uh, border patrol in the U.S. So you Correct. crossed, and and then you came back, uh, but you weren't tested in the United States during the five hours you were there. That's correct. So that probably, from what I can gather is what caused you to get a $6,250 fine. Did but they give you did they did they give you the option of returning to the United States for the test? They said they gave me a chance to return to the US, but I thought that was ludicrous. First of all, I don't know if I would be able to get back in the United States. Second of all, I had to get home because I had to uh, I have a child that's not well and plus they wanted me to run to the Buffalo airport, which is uh, in a different city to go get it done, which seems, you know, insane to do that. They told you to go to Buffalo Airport? Yes. So now, didn't any, I mean, did they just call uh, a local law enforcement officer who who just walked up and, I mean, was it like getting a traffic ticket? No, they had to call basically uh, Ottawa, the Health Canada, because unfortunately their Health Canada people are too lazy to be there on the weekend. So um, they have to call a, some, some um, jurisdiction up in Ottawa who makes who uh, gives them, gives them advice spoke to me, and then they have to basically since uh, again Health Canada is not there, then they have to order the Niagara Police to go come in from from the station to give the ticket. So again, you're a Canadian citizen. You're vaccinated. You had the uh, the COVID test done at Humber Hospital in Toronto. It's negative. I saw the report. You filled out the Arrive Can application. I saw that as well. They sent you a QR number, an identity number that you were supposed to show at the border. You did all of that. The only thing that you didn't do was be vaccinated in, or not vaccinated, uh, tested in the United States during your time there. But you were there for five hours. That's right. Not only that, I also did another test when I came back at uh, Mackenzie Health just to verify I was still negative, and which was uh, verified on Saturday evening. How do you feel? I mean, not, not physically. How do you feel about the experience? I'm outraged. I'm, I'm shaking, basically, because I'm so upset with this government. I know, so, what, you, I know what you do for a living, and you're a responsible professional. 
I don't I don't know what to say. I, I mean, I'm I looking mean, at this. I, I read these. I read this information, and I'm thinking if I, if somebody gave me this, I, and I was going over for a few hours, I'd never have a chance. Ever have a chance? I'd blow it. But that I did. Mean, but so Ottawa told this officer to give you the five thousand dollar fine and the twelve hundred and fifty dollar surcharge. Correct. What are you going to do? I'm going to fight. You know, all they want it seems the government always want to do is wants our uh, the our money, put our hand in our pocket. I have no chance, I said, because I said, if I'm going to be found guilty on this, I'll serve the time. And the officer says, sorry, there's no jail time on this. We, you know, we'll suspend your license, we'll sue you, but we, we won't put you in jail to fight it. You know? Okay. I, I said, this is insane. This is really insane that they, uh, they're doing this. Stephen, I'm going to stay in touch with you and find out how this goes. But, you know... Here they're bringing in the, the, the Toronto Blue Jays, for instance, yeah. next week. Yeah. And uh, four of their players played in the All-Star game. One of the players who yeah. was in the pardon? Yeah, yeah, I know. And they're, they're going to monitor them as well, and they can be fine, too. I saw that story. Stephen, but, I'm going to stay in touch with you on this, okay? Because I want to do a follow-up. I want to do a follow-up with you. All I'm asking is, 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 you know, is a saying that you might understand is we, we want to make it a chenou. You know, it, this is getting ridiculous. You know, the government coming, clamping down okay. on us. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 